I'll be fine. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. Welcome to the program. My very special guest tonight is Taylor Capra Thomas. Her acclaimed new book of poetry, Iguana, Iguana, is available now. Hello, Kaylin. How are you tonight? Hello. I'm good. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. I'm glad you're with me. I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for asking. It's time for us, Kaylin, to take a poetic journey over the course of the next hour. And I want to begin this journey by asking you the following question. What is poetry? Mm, yeah, poetry is such a slippery fish. <laughs> um, I think for every attribute you could use to name or define poetry, there's, you know, there's a, there's a poem or a kind of poem that defies categorization by that attribute. So like, you know, a poem doesn't have to rhyme, it doesn't have to have line breaks, it doesn't have to tell a story or even tell the truth. Um, but it can do all those things. It's just that it's, it can't be defined by those things. So, you know, um, I, think, I think you know a poem when you see a poem. It's something oh, that I... looks like a poem and sounds like a poem and feels like a poem. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a piece of language that's using image and sound and line in a way that's really intentional and unique to poetic construction, but, you know, which might take a variety of forms and purposes. All right, all right. Okay. We know what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like. Why is it important? Why is poetry important? Hmm. Um, poetry is important because it's weird. Um, mm. It's a really weird thing to do. And right. we do it with this, yeah, we do it with this very common material, right? Like we do it with language, which almost everyone has access to. And we've been compelled to make poems for as long as we've had those materials, just like we've been dancing and singing and making pictures for as long as we've been able to, you know, we're, we're really creative animals. And I think that poetry satisfies this deeply human need to use, to use the commonness of the world to make it less common. Um, and then, you know, when you found a piece of art or a poem that means something to you, that's just the best thing. And you can, you can carry it with you forever. I've never heard it described, and maybe I got it wrong, as being weird. <laughs> Tell me about this weird component. <laughs> well, I mean, I think most people write poems in a way that they wouldn't necessarily speak, you know? Um, mm. The way that poetry uses uh, breath and space, um, you know, we're kind of, sometimes emphasizing words where it'd be weird to emphasize them in speech. Um, we're making these sort of leaps of logic from image to image or idea to idea that would be probably kind of confusing or off-putting if you were to do it when, um, you know, just talking to somebody in a conversation. It would maybe be kind of hard to follow. Um, 
but maybe people do that more than I'm I'm thinking. I just think that like the way a poem is constructed is um, we're putting so much more thought into what we're saying and how we're saying it, and we're also there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of sort of unnatural artifice to poetry in terms of um, how we're using language and the way we're arranging it that um, just doesn't really doesn't really come up in day-to-day speech because, you know, we're not, if you're having a conversation with, um, you know, the person at the store, that is for a very specific purpose to communicate or whatever, like you're not trying to make art in that moment. All right. I like that. Your new book, Iguana, Iguana. Mm-hmm. I did some research <laughs> because okay. I wanted to know more about an iguana. <laughs> yeah. And I went on Wikipedia, of course. <laughs> it said it's a genus of a herbivorous lizard that are native to the tropical island, tropical areas of Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. Why did you name your book after an iguana? Tell me more. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's great. Um, I, I named it after a poem in the book. So there's a poem in the book called, um, Iguana, Iguana. And I wrote this poem while I was in, um, Key West, Florida, where I was an artist in residence at the studios of Key West. And iguanas like basically run that island. They are everywhere and they're not supposed to be. Um, and some of them are really huge, so it's, like, hard not to notice them or think about them when you're there, especially if you're not from mm-hmm. there and you aren't used to these, like, dinosaurs being in the trees overhead all the time. Um, and so at the studios, they gave us uh, they gave us bikes to get around, but, uh, you know, there I was. I was 30 years old, and I never really properly or thoroughly learned how to ride a bike. So I'd take one every morning to the cemetery down the street, and I'd practice, and I'd just, like, pedal around and there were these iguanas everywhere and there were these roosters everywhere um, and obviously tombstones because I was in a cemetery. And then just as I was doing this every day, going around and around, something started to stick together about that repetitive movement around and around the cemetery. Mm -hmm. Um, And these other repetitive movements that kind of like undergird our lives and that undergird poems too. So I kind of went from like bicycles to life cycles. Um, And when I read that the iguanas, taxonomic name was just iguana twice iguana iguana it mm-hmm. felt really perfect to me because it's like um you know it kind of it it speaks to um this idea of repetitiveness but also um this kind of recursiveness that kind of appears throughout the book overall like that's that's why i chose this poem to be sort of like the ambassador for the collection as that you know it, aside from it sort of having a lot of other things in common with the rest of the book, um, it, it, ha- it speaks to this idea of um, repetition and doubling. Like a lot of the poems in the collection are about um, alternate versions of the past or like alternate selves, alternate lives. Um, and I found myself Googling one night uh, things that are like Russian dolls because I couldn't remember the word recursive. Um, All right. So I think that, like, you know, that name, Iguana Iguana, it has that kind of, like, drosty effect. Um, and, uh, you know, just – and then, like, the fact that iguanas are so adaptive but also invasive in the place where I um, where I first, like, met them, I guess, 
Uh, that mm-hmm. also felt sort of true to that resonated with me. Oh, it's very fascinating. I, when I first heard the title, I was like, Iguana, Iguana? I want to know more. <laughs> it made me want to pick up the Good. book and read the book. <laughs> because I wanted to know what was inside. What made this okay. poet title her book, Iguana, Iguana? And now I know. And now I know. <laughs> and now you know. It was all yes. about uh, not knowing how to ride a bike. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. All right. Share a poem, please. Okay. I will, I will read that poem. I'll read the title poem. All right. I like that. Now, let me bring it up. You know. Okay. Iguana, Iguana, Key West. Things crawl over me here. No seams and biting ants. They make me feel hospitable, like, at last, I am a good host. Stop itching, I tell myself. We have guests. What is a guest if not something that takes a little bit of your life? In the cemetery where I practice pedaling, sailing circles around the dead, iguanas sunbake and scurry the white slabs, the green length of them, defiant drapery and death tail parlor. I'm told they're invasive. Even their taxonomy, iguana, iguana, it's too much, too many iguanas. The William Carlos Williams of reptiles, or the man my mother loved after my father, Jim James, who chugged caffeine-free Diet Pepsi and made his pecs dance recited the three words of Italian he learned from Sylvester Stallone, Siamo and Andiamo. He once argued with me over my stubborn belief that 10,000 was the same thing as 1 million. I was never good with numbers. He was never good with kids. He built things and made my mother laugh, maybe too much, maybe for the wrong reasons. During cold snaps, the iguanas freeze and fall like stoned fruit from the trees, wake only once their core has warmed. I won't be here to see it. It's the off season now, August, everything dank and hot-blooded, which is what I think my mother liked about Jim. Something raw about him, the pink scars, or his own mother's boyfriend stubbed out cigarettes on his arms, or how he called here kitty kitty nightly into the dark after the cat ran away. She was astray to begin with. We lured her into our lives with milk, named her Fitty Fat the Kitty Cat, let her eat and fuck and kill as much as she wanted. Litters of kittens and kibble and dead birds piling up. What else is there to say? But everything we've said before, over and again, iguana, iguana, Italian stallion, here, kitty, kitty, andiamo, Jim James. What is a child? It's not something that takes a little bit of your life. He wasn't a bad man. He made my mother laugh. Thank you. Wow. What are some of the predominant themes of your work, Caitlin? Mm, right. So this book in particular, uh, like I mentioned, explores kind of the idea of like alternate pasts and residual selves. But um, in my work overall, including in Iguana Iguana, I think I'm always I'm always thinking about like the magnificence of the ordinary. Um, I'm often thinking about kinship, whether that's like between, you know, feeling in kinship with family or feeling in kinship with friends. And that theme of kinship is honestly also kind of like has some tension with um, uh, another fixation that I have on solitude. Like I really, I really believe in the sanctity of solitude. I really need it. It makes me feel alive and connected to the non-human world. 
Um, but being drawn towards that also means I'm thinking a lot about loneliness in poems, how, you know, mm-hmm. being among people isn't the same thing as being connected to them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are those two different kinds of aloneness that I'm thinking about a lot. Um, and I think that, like, being often in solitude, either kind of aloneness, whether you're um, lonely or just alone, I think that it makes for kind of um, really like watchful speakers, like I feel like there are a lot of mirrors and gazing and um, looking. Um, and then another thing that comes up a lot for me is just place and movement through different kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also been brought to my attention recently that there are a lot of kitchens in my poems, which I don't really know what to do with yet, but I realize that it's very All right. So, you know, All right. you can take All that right. on it. <laughs> <laughs> How does a poem begin for you, my friend? With an idea, a form, or an image? Um, I think that, for me, a poem begins with something that catches my ear as often as it does with something that catches my eye, like a turn of phrase, a tone of voice, um, cadences. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a poem actually starts with a title. Like I'll see it in all caps in my head and I just know that it's a title for something. And then I kind of carry it around for a little while that way until something emerges to actually use it for. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'd like you to do at this point, share another poem. Oh, great. Okay. All right. So this one is called past life self portrait with mountains. Oh, honey. Your thoughts fermenting like vinegar, like the flies that once burst into being behind the cupboard, something dead back there. Montana me, everything a poem, buttons, bottles, anything that could be emptied or undone, anything that could be but wouldn't, the version of myself that stayed and figured out how to forage for morels, something good from wildfire. Allison taught me that, plus the names of the pines, the ones that smelled sweet and whose cones the heat busted open, ponderosa, something good from all that fire. Montana me, you go on somewhere, still burning it down every year, still bursting into being in spring, like flies or pines or mushrooms, still nervous as a ghost, throat filled with smoke, something dead out there. Montana me, gray wisp, whatever the fire leaves behind. Thank you. Wow. I just want to sit for a moment and allow that to to marinate. Mm, okay. Got a little marinade mm. going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I think with poetry, I'd like you to read that again. Read that one again for me because I want to really okay. understand it. Really, one more time. Okay. Will do. Past life self-portrait with mountains. Oh, honey. Your thoughts fermenting like vinegar, like the flies that once burst into being behind the cupboard, something dead back there. Montana me, everything a poem, buttons, bottles, anything that could be emptied or undone, anything that could be but wouldn't, the version of myself that stayed and figured out how to forage for morels, something good Mm -hmm. from wildfire. Allison taught me that, plus the names of the pines, those ones that smelled sweet and whose cones the heat busted open. Ponderosa, something good from all that fire. Montana me, you go on somewhere, 
still burning it down every year, still bursting into being in spring, like flies or pines or mushrooms, still nervous as a ghost, throat filled with smoke, something dead out there. Montana me, gray wisp, whatever the fire leaves behind. Wow. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic mm. language had power? Mm. I mean, I can remember like the first the first poem, I guess like the first two poems that I read that were like fairly contemporary poems um, that really sort of had an impact on me uh, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I hadn't been exposed to much contemporary poetry in high school. Like I, I didn't know that um, poets were people alive on earth making poems. I thought it was like Robert Frost wrote six poems once right. and that was it. It's just him and me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was in college, I took a poetry as literature class. And um, I think the first, so the two poems that stick out to me from that experience were Dorian Lox's Anti-Lamentation, um, which was just a, a poem that um, I carried around with me kind of many places. Like I, I would, in the same copy, it was actually the copy that my professor like passed out in the class and I like cut it out from, freed it from the page and would sort of like pack it up over my desk or my bed. Um, and then there was a Jack Gilbert poem um, that I'm going to forget the title of it, which is silly because I'm saying it's so important to me, but um, uh, it's like never available when when you need it, yes. But <laughs> I understand. It's uh, <laughs> I do remember. Okay, so it's called Finding Something. I remembered the first All right. line. Um, All right. <laughs> and the first line is, I say the moon is horses in the tempered dark because horse is the closest I can get to it. And I remember reading wow. that and thinking, like, that that doesn't make sense on the on the cerebral level, on the level of you know just logic, but it makes sense deeply under the skin like um and that that really resonated with me and then the end of that poem uh is another um sort of kind of out there um metaphor and i just remember finding it so mysterious but also mm-hmm. i was i was just very intrigued by this idea that something could be a mystery to you but still make sense if that it does so is your book Iguana Iguana still a mystery to you even though it's finished hmm in some ways I think like I a friend of mine visited me a few weeks ago and she was reading poems from the book that I wrote to me um, and Mm -hmm. it was a really like it was a really interesting experience. It, I, it felt um, it felt like what I would imagine it would be like to watch a movie or a TV show of your own life and see somebody else play you, you know? Wow, um, yes. I don't think that's an experience I will ever have, but I think that that's the closest mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I could get to it. Um, and to hear, to hear your own work come out of somebody else's mouth, to hear it in their voice, um, it... I was surprised by 
aspects of the poem that are def that were definitely there that I had either forgotten about or hadn't even like seen or heard before because I was so used to reading it in one way with my own voice or with my own eyes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the things that other people catch on or emphasize when they read it can be really enlightening. So I think, you know, I think a poem is always kind of a little bit of a, a little bit of a mystery because it can mean different things to you at different points in your life, even if you're the person who wrote it. Yes, I agree. I agree. You know, you used the word voice. And what I'd like to know, what is the relationship mm -hmm. between your speaking voice and your written voice, if there is a relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think my written voice probably takes itself more seriously than my speaking voice. Um, Tell me. I think, <laughs> I think that um, <laughs> when I'm speaking, I, I think that I'm very conscious of the fact that someone is listening when I'm speaking out loud right, to right. a person. Um, and I think that that actually does have a pretty big impact on the way that I speak. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very sort of jokey person and that's part of my personality, but I think that there's also an element of that that is like feedback seeking, you know, like wanting to hear the laughter as like proof that the, not proof that the person is listening, but like as, just something to mark the fact that it's an exchange, you know, and mm -hmm. when I'm writing, like, I'm, I'm not actually the whoever, you know, I hope to someday have an audience for whoever, you know, for whatever poem I'm writing, but I'm not thinking about it as so immediate. So I think that the words um, can kind of like echo. And I think that that allows them to use space a little bit more, um, yeah, I think I'm just a little bit more conscious of the fact that I'm speaking by myself when I'm on the page. And that gives me, that allows me sort of the space and the time and the grace to be um, more thoughtful and intentional and think about, you know, what does the poem actually want to say versus like, what do I want this listening audience to hear? Oh, wow. It's very honest and I appreciate that. Please share another poem. Yeah, I actually never really thought about that until that moment. Like, oh, well, that's why you're with me. That's why you're with me. <laughs> so you can think of those things. Think of Please yeah. share another poem. Thank you. I'm going to back talk at that, Colonel. Hmm. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, did you say read another poem? Yes, yes, please. Oh, okay. I, I missed that part. It's like, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something. I don't know what it is. Okay. Um, That's okay. All right. <laughs> so it's called Patron Saint. The people were not cruel, but the town was. In its heart, it was. In its heart of mills and falls and wind, flogged itself. It's people who loved God and prayed to so-and-so, patron saint of whatever. Everyone there waiting for something that would never return. Some had waited so long they forgot what it was and decided to call it heaven. The thing they waited for, that is. The town was not heaven, but was also, sometimes, when I think about it, not earth. Some other nowhere place, alien in its gray and beige, its salted streets and stone walls. Some days I'd climb to the top of the road to the old farm where my father saw his collie's ghost and I'd stand there waiting to see Franz, thinking, it's true we all come back, everything, everyone returns. 
And when I saw nothing but late winter's gold lick the forsaken trees and some schoolmates tool by in an old Saturn ringed around the rims with snow, I knew I had been abandoned by something, that Saint so-and-so was sleeping, forever sleeping, leave her be, and whatever I was waiting for lived somewhere else, and I was never coming back. Thank you. What, Kaylin, is the purpose of that particular poem? Tell me. What are you attempting hmm. to convey? I think uh, I think I've spent a lot of time um, in the last few years thinking about this idea of home because I've moved a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in I grew up in Massachusetts, and I haven't lived there in like ten years. Um, and I I think that I'm kind of always longing towards an idea of home that maybe wasn't that maybe actually doesn't exist. Like, I don't know. If, All right. And I think, yeah, I think that that's kind of a common experience, but um, I was thinking about my hometown and I was thinking about how I would often describe it to people as being kind of like this nowhere place. Like it was, <laughs> it exists and it is somewhere, <laughs> but I always found it kind of hard to describe exactly what it was. And so I think mm. this was an attempt to think about what it was and then like also sort of think about who I was when I was there and mm-hmm. how it came to be that I was somebody who wasn't going to return to that place and was never going to call that place home again. Wow. That's a powerful awareness. Very powerful. <laughs> you know, either there's oh, a movie right? called You Can't Go Home Again or – a play mm. can't go home again, something like that. You know, all great writers, Caitlin, have great writing mm. influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Mm. Um, so the first one that comes to mind whenever I think about this is a poet whose work on the surface is like pretty unlike my own, but when I first encountered mm-hmm. it, it really changed things for me. So... I found the poet Chelsea Minnis' book, Bad, Bad, at a bookstore in North Andover, Mass. And it is so weird and so irreverent and, like, fightingly funny. Um, you know, it was, it was also the first book of poems I bought that wasn't assigned to me in a class. So I think that that maybe has something to do with why it, like, looms so large in my imagination. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, ha- she starts off this book. She starts off the book with a series of preface poems. Um, you know, they're all titled preface plus a number, and they're essentially this weirdo manifesto giant middle finger to the idea of poetry as a business and institution while also clearly celebrating um, a different kind of poetic ideal where poetry still has this ability to, like, get under your skin, make you feel weird stuff, um, but isn't beholden to these uh, to these kinds of institutions that would tell you that it has to be this really specific kind of thing. And I remember thinking, like, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could be this weird. I didn't know that you could, um, you know, like the blurbs on the back of the book are, uh, like, not flattering. <laughs> it's just such a, uh, such a revelation to me. Um, and I think a lot of the significant moments, you know, I've had with poems have been moments of permission where, like, a poem or a poet helps me realize the possibilities that really are inherent to the form. Um, and then, mm-hmm. like, you know, branching out of that, those are also possibilities that are inherent to the lives the poems are about. Like, not only can you write a poem about, you know, saying, like, 
through the man, like you can also like live a life that says through the man, you know? Um, yes. But yeah. And then, you know, well, I've also you been really influenced by some of my writing. Well, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> All right. I was going to say that <laughs> if you had to choose someone as a poetic mentor, mm-hmm. who would it be? Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so I was really lucky to have some like poetic mentors. I did my, um, MFA in the University of Montana, uh, and I worked closely there with the poets uh, Pragita Sharma and Joanna Klink, and they are as great a poets as they are teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt really like I felt really nurtured by by them, and I felt really inspired by their work. Um, you know, Pragita's poems show you how to think, like. They show you that that poems can think out loud on the page without being hyper stuffy or turning into like a Wikipedia page, um, which was important yes. to me because a lot of poems that I write, um, you know, I often find myself falling down these research rabbit holes, um, and you know, you don't have to just write about experiences; like you can write about ideas too. Um, mm-hmm. And and Joanna's poems really show you how to pay like very close attention to the material world. So I think that. Um, there's a lot of their mentorship in my work that that's pretty clearly visible. Um, you know, I think that I've also been really influenced by songwriters just because, you know, once again, I didn't read poetry in high school, but I was writing poetry. Yes. So yes. Know, I was obsessed with lyrics. Now, the poems that you've shared so far, as well as the poems I've had the opportunity to read in your book, they all seem to be about emotion in one way or another. All right, correct me if I'm wrong. There's some emotion involved. Sure, yeah. Okay, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that a person can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Um, I mean, I don't know if there are people out there that don't feel strong emotions. I think there are plenty of people out there who are, like, taught to sort of their strong emotions and push them down, which is obviously, you know, um, not good for them or anybody else. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think that, yeah, I think poets are sort of generally, they're, they're feelers and they're thinkers. Like, I, I think that those things, you know, can coexist and inform one another. All right. Share another poem. All righty. This is another... Floridian poem called Cedar Key, and Cedar Key is a um, little fishing village on the Gulf Coast about um, an hour or so from where I lived in Gainesville, Florida when I lived there. Cedar Key. Bayside, two women sit in the sand. They click pictures of one another, of the sea just beyond. All three bodies reflect the light. Brine shimmer, skin shimmer, shrine of something inside. One rests her head on the other's warmed shoulder, then lies down. The other hands her a t-shirt to cover her eyes. Nearby docks bear signs advising fishermen to do just this to the unlucky pelicans caught by their lures, to soothe with not seeing, with soft cloth over the eyes. The two women are already serene, savoring the sights, the not seeing the closeness of the other. This is love, or friendship, which is also love. Meanwhile, the sand gives over to form and remains somehow itself, 
I want to be shaped and unshaped like that, but also to stay firm like the oyster shells I pull from the surf, some fused together, ridged blue as if veined, fixed forever to the first hard surface they touch. I want a form that is a home I can leave and return to. I want to use my cells to build a fortress and tear the fortress down. If I pledge allegiance to my body, I will never be homesick, though I may always be at war. You can't cut free a pelican until you move the hook that took her in. What brought me here? By what lure? When the women loosen themselves from the shore, they are different. They don't know it. They shake out their blankets, scatter former castles. When they leave, I am different. They don't know me. Their voices rise and fall like water, like the cool tongue of the world lapping senseless her own great unsolvable wound. Thank you. Wow. I enjoy listening to your work. Oh, thank you. There's just something about the way that you read it. Yes, it just just brings it alive. It just brings it alive. And Mm -hmm. uh, I want you to recite that one again. (laughs) I'm just not getting enough. Please. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Sure thing. (laughs) Okay. This is Peter Key, round two. (laughs) Bayside. (laughs) Bayside, two women sit in the sand. They click pictures of one another, of the sea just beyond. All three bodies reflect the light. Brine shimmer, skin shimmer, shrine of something inside. One rests her head on the other's warmed shoulder, then lies down. The other hands her a t-shirt to cover her eyes. Nearby docks bear signs advising fishermen to do justice to the unlucky pelicans caught by their lures, to soothe with not seeing, with soft cloth over the eyes. The two women are already serene, savoring the sight, the not seeing, the closeness of the other. This is love, or friendship, which is also love. Meanwhile, the sand gives over to form and remains somehow itself. I want to be shaped and unshaped like that but also to stay firm like the oyster shells I pull from the surf, some fused together, ridged blue as if veined, fixed forever as the first hard surface they touch. I want a form that is a home I can leave and return to. I want to use my cells to build a fortress, then tear the fortress down. If I pledge allegiance to my body, I will never be homesick, though I may always be at war. You can't cut free a pelican until you remove the hook that took her in. What brought me here? By what lure? When the women loosen themselves from the shore, they are different. They don't know it. They shake out their blankets, scatter former castles. When they leave, I am different. They don't know me. Their voices rise and fall like water, like the cool tongue of the world, lapping senseless their own great unsolvable wound. Thank you. Wow. I think the line, if I pledged my allegiance to my body... Wow, that's deep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to think about that one for a very long time, a very long time. Kaylin, question for you. Poem, letting your guard down or building a wall? Hmm. Hmm. I think it can kind of depend, and it can also be a little bit of both at once. 
Um, I think, like, I want to say that it's letting your guard down and that it's being vulnerable because, you know, a lot of times um, I am sharing things in poems that I feel strongly about or that have had big impacts on me. Um, but I, I also can't ignore the fact that there that like when you are writing a poem, you are constructing something like you are building something. Um, and so there is, there is a way where it's, um, it's all, <laughs> this might be too cute, but it's almost like building sure. a wall of your, of out of your vulnerabilities. Like if your vulnerabilities well, are like materials, that. then, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I might think about it later and be like, what did I even mean by that? But I, I'm thinking right. with it now. Um, I think that, you know, our, our, our vulnerabilities, our pain, our feelings, our, um, our drives and desires, like these can all be the building materials of our poems. And in, and in constructing the poem, we might also be constructing, um, you know, an outward facing version of those things that might still obscure parts of truth about those things, you know, like it's, they mm-hmm. might not be the whole story. They can be useful ways to, to process, but um, they, yeah, I mean, especially if you're, you know, turning it into art, um, mm-hmm. you just can't escape the, the artifice part of art. All right. Well, let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Okay. Great. forever as if like 
from the gods or something. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. pretty rare, and it gets for some reason it gets rarer as I get older. So I think that you know, um, I think it's important to be open to having the the work of writing a poem be kind of you know messy work and um, and saving drafts. That's I am a big believer in in the scrap folder. All right, is that an answer right. to that question? I'm actually not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it is. Okay. There are no right or wrong answers, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm so glad you're with me. Uh, share another poem, please. Alrighty. Okay. This poem is called Caveat. It is not enough to love yourself. It is not enough to throw a slide for warm broth, nor to have heated stones piled on your back. It is not enough to be yourself. So be it. Not enough. There are no good places to live and no good ways to die. About the too much sweet and foggy blossom of the drug, your first love loved best, he said, never enough, and slipped into nothing the cat licking his slack face until morning. To say you loved him once, why bother? He loved you back, but not enough. It is not enough to love others, to cry at the shape of them and imagine their insides. They don't like imagining you imagining their insides. The gut flora, the mean little stones amassing malice in the kidneys don't do it. There isn't enough spit in circulation to shine up what's tarnished in you, and what's tarnished in you isn't tarnished enough. Stop trying. Lay into the world like it's good enough. It'll have to be. Maybe it is. Thank you. Mm. Now that you've written your book, what did you learn about yourself during this process? During the process? Yeah. Um think that I learned that sometimes you need to just keep living to find the thread mm. that you're looking for in your writing. Um, mm. Like, you know, you can get a lot done with bit and willpower, but not everything. And um, I think I've actually, it's, it's come up a lot for me, both in poetry, also write nonfiction. Um that, you know, I'm, I really want the, you know, like I wanted this book to be a book before it was ready to be a book. And so oh, wow. um, I didn't realize, you know, like th- there are poems from the first version of it in here, but um, it's very different from, from that original version. And I, I needed it. I needed more patience and um, I needed to live through all these other places and selves and lives and years. And um, I needed to write all these other poems um, for this book to manifest and cohere and to have all these poems speak to one another. Um, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of always reaching towards the future. And I think this book helped me realize that I, I really do need to, um, move through where I am and be mm-hmm. there and 
you know, write the present in order to, in order to like access the, the future that I want the, the book to have. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Yes. <laughs> Tell me more. Tell um, me. I want to hear everything. <laughs> I basically, I can't think of anything else I'd be any good at. And like, <laughs> it sounds really depressing <laughs> to him. It sounds really depressing to imagine that life, like the one where I'm just kind of bumbling around being bad at everything. So I think that, um, I, I, I really needed to be a poet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also, yeah, <laughs> I think that's the right. poet's way of sort of moving through the world um, in this sort of, you know, uh, playful and attentive state is something that was really um a good fit for me. I think that, you know, right. a lot of times we neglect to talk about how playful poetry really is as an art, like you're playing mm-hmm. with language. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, that fits in with my, with my personality pretty well. Oh, very nice. Very nice. You know, you use the word world, which brings up a question. Mm-hmm. So much is happening in our world. The good, the mm-hmm. bad, the ugly, you name it, the indifferent, you name it. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? Yeah, um, it's a good one. I think different poets fulfill different roles in the same way that like different poems serve different purposes. But when it, you know, at the at the bottom of all that, there's the fact that we're artists, and so like other artists, we are we're thinkers and we're translators. Mm-hmm. So we translate something that we felt or something that we thought or experienced into our medium, which is language. Um, and sometimes that helps someone else say, like, oh, I've, I've felt that way before. I've thought that or I've experienced that. And either I didn't have language for it or I never realized I needed language for it. Um, and so poets provide that. And then, you know, if you haven't had that thought or feeling or experience, maybe, maybe reading it in a poem can help you better understand someone who has. Um, you know, and then there are also times when the poet's role is to like ask questions um, for which there Mm -hmm. are at the moment, no answers. Sometimes the poet's role is to like expose and critique, um, expose and critique like power structures, unjust power structures in particular. Um, There, you know, there are a lot of roles for us. Sometimes our purpose is just to say like, Hey, isn't it crazy that any of us are here on earth right now? Or like, aren't birds really cool? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yes. Sometimes I think our I role is to basically be like the stoner friend reminding you that the world is like really magical, but in a way that won't make mm-hmm. you roll your eyes, hopefully. Wow. You know, there's so much I want to ask you. Please share another poem. Please share another poem. I want to hear your voice. Okay, okay. Um, let's see. So this poem is called, I Don't Know What People Should Do. I'm sitting in the backyard, fire pit, night's thinnest hours, next door a baby crying. The sound so alien to my life that I mistake it for a tomcat. Hot need beneath the neighbors rusted out trampolines, feral pleading. Assumptions about what we couldn't possibly understand are cobbled together from what little we do. Like last week when I saw an elderly couple holding hands and believed they were having an affair. 
<laughs> I've been told that love doesn't always start in darkness, but I can't tell you for certain. A man's voice booms from inside the neighbor's house. Fuck off. And the baby stops for a minute, then starts again. Not the brightest beginning to a life, but there it is. Elsewhere in the valley, dream of the old couple stretching feline across her bed, a gold bracelet skimming talc powdered skin he tried not to love, threatening to slip off her wrist. They are satisfied, humming and irreparable, standing at the edge of their lives, astonished at how much they have carried, the weight of knowing and missing whoever they were, already losing whoever they are, not to mention the others, not to mention the illicit agony of watching a fire pit empty its smoke up into the sky like a middle finger to the still burning stars or gold falling softly to the floor. Thank you. Wow. You write exceptionally well. Thank you. (laughs) Well, what I like, one of the things, there are so many things I like about your work, is that I can understand it. I can feel Mm. it. I can see it. I can taste it in a sense. Mm. How important mm-hmm. is accessibility to you? How hard should you work for a poem mm-hmm. to solve a poem? How hard should you work to solve a poem? Hmm. I think for some people there, for some readers, there is a real joy and pleasure in muscling out an understanding of a poem in the same way mm-hmm. that there are people who like enjoy jogging, <laughs> like tough yes. workouts or um, <laughs> certain intense flavors. Um, And there are certainly poems I love that don't make a ton of sense on the surface, but which resonate Mm -hmm. with me deeply under the surface. And I think the key Mm -hmm. to appreciating that kind of poem is like just sort of letting it inhabit you and appreciating Mm -hmm. the experience of reading it for whatever it is for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think that there's so much to admire in a poem that like says something with elegant simplicity um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, we are also really fortunate to be living in a time when poetry isn't any one particular thing. Like, there are poems for people who enjoy the, you know, so-called difficult poems, and there are poems for people who prefer something more straightforward. And one mm-hmm. poet can write both kinds of poems. So, um, you know, I think that accessibility is great, and I also think that there are some poems that might take a little bit more of your attention and time that are also worth um, that are also worth that attention and time. Um, that was a yeah. really nice answer. I like that. You are so well balanced. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like it. I like it. As you as you think about your work, Kaylin, has a poem that you've written ever humbled or frightened you? Hmm. Um, let's see. I, I think, I mean, plenty of other people's poems have humbled me, but mm-hmm. um, in terms of my own poems, I think that there have been times when something comes up or out in a poem that I'm not maybe really ready to look at head on or deal with yet. Um, All right. I'm actually not sure if any of those poems have like made it out into the world yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that, um, you know, in the same way that just 
having a conversation with someone and talking through, um, you know, your ideas and your feelings can lead you to unexpected realizations about yourself. Writing can obviously definitely do the same thing. And so I think that, you know, if you write poetry long enough, you're going to learn something about yourself. And sometimes those things are really um, useful and fun to tell people at parties. And sometimes those things are um, hard and scary. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble accessing in my mind like a specific poem where I felt that way. That's okay. I, it's, That's okay. I'm sure, it's happened, though, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> the whole experience you of know, writing poetry has humbled and frightened me. <laughs> all right. I can understand that. I mean, that's human, and that's real. I like <laughs> yeah. that authenticity. I like that. I guess what I want to ask you, you shared that you felt you were meant to be a poet. What surprises mm-hmm. you most about being a poet? What surprises me most about being a poet? Yes. Um. I think that perhaps what surprises me most about being a poet is that it's, um, you know, like most of my poems are composed with just like, it's just me and whatever I'm writing with. But, um, and, and I also think that like people have this conception of the poet as this sort of like, you know, hermit figure. Um, but I actually, I've, I've been surprised to find that there is so much, um, so much community to find in in poetry like some of my um favorite people and favorite friends are poets uh and i've met i've just met so many wonderful people who've meant so much to me um through through my experiences um writing and reading poems and you know some of those people i said that i say that i've met them but now that i think about it you know some of those people are just like poets whose work has meant a lot to me and i've never met them but it it feels mm-hmm. like um you know having their work being able to take their work along with me throughout my life is, um, you know, like another um, another nod towards the fact that nobody's really doing this alone. I think that was surprising to me. All right. So when you work with readers or when readers read your work, what do you want them to get mm-hmm. from encountering it? What do you want them to get? What do you want them to learn about you? Hmm. Okay, so I feel like what I want them to get and what I want them to know about me are potentially two different things. But Okay, um, all right. I think maybe what I want them to get from the poems, um, I want them to find something for themselves in the poems. Like I don't, mm. even though most of these poems are very much like, you know, lyric poems, first person, um, I I hope that like, me as a person like I can like sort of disappear a little bit um, and that they can find something in the poem that matters to them Um, and and then in terms of like what I hope of myself comes through um, is I guess just that I'm here (laughs) I'm here and I'm paying attention and I care and um Mm -hmm. And yeah, like I know that all, you know, everybody, everybody's words eventually kind of fade away, but um, I like, I don't know, I like imagining somebody in the distant future happening upon one of these poems and just knowing that I was here. Oh, that, 
That is so nice. <laughs> that touched me. That really, really did to to leave your mark on the world in that way. Poetry allows you to do yeah. that. It's your yeah, mark it on the world. And I think that And no one can take it away yeah. from you. It's your mark on the world. I love mm-hmm. that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that one. That yeah. that touched me. That touched <laughs> me. It really did. Yeah. Now I don't we we're gonna run out of time here, Caitlin. I don't want us to run okay. out of time. I'm gonna to have to invite you back for a part two. Uh later this summer. <laughs> I, I want you that. to come back. I'm serious for part okay. two. Because there's so okay. much more I want to talk to you about. Share another poem. Share another poem. Okay. Will this be the last one? No. That will make it the, <laughs> the next to the last one. Did you say no? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not gonna okay, let you go. Okay. It's the next to the last one. <laughs> okay. Um all right. Uh, this one is called Time Sure Flies When You're Not Living Up to Your Potential. <laughs> oh, I want to hear this one. <laughs> the title already intrigues me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was one of those ones where I was like, the title came first. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Time sure flies when you're not living up to your potential. So everything failed. The jabbed iron trees flamed out in spectacular failure along the ragged range. Forecast failed. The pollster that glistered turned huckster. And the memory of that ex who called you Petit Bouchon failed to reassure that you once loved, wreckful and reckless and in a foreign tongue. All around you now, Florida fails pinkly and by voracious flora. The lizard who burned or drowned hot tubbing and your hot coffee failed perfectly, curled into an eternal question mark, little fingers clenched, duked up. If death is the body's failure, it is also its final fuck you, which has to count for something, which has to be a win. Thank you. <laughs> you know, we again, there's such synchronicity. You said the word titles, and your titles mm-hmm. are very creative. They're fascinating. They're intriguing. Mm-hmm. What role should a title play for a poem? Mm-hmm. What's important to consider? Because there's so many. There's so many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about titles a lot. I love titles. I have an entire slideshow for my intro to poetry class about different kinds of titles and the different functions really? they can serve. It's oh, called wow. titles, not just hats but also here are some hats and it uses different kinds oh. of hats as metaphors for different kinds of titles. Because I do think that there's a, there's a tendency sometimes for people when titling to be like, I don't know, I just need to put something on top. Like I'm just, I'm just putting a hat on. It doesn't matter. Um, but you know, there, there are all different kinds of hats out there, all different kinds of um, ways to wear them. And I think that, you know, you can have a title that is, um, really, really instructive that like, you know, without that title, the poem doesn't make any sense. You can have a title that is just sort of like an ambiance setting for the poem that kind of gives it a little bit of atmosphere, but doesn't necessarily like inform us of anything. Um, you can have a poem that serves as like a springboard. You can have a title that serves as a springboard into the poem. Um, you can have, you know, like a minimalist title, maximalist title. You can have a bleeding title where it's like the um, you know, the syntax of the title sort of bleeds naturally into the first line of the poem. There are so many different, I, I have so much fun with titles. 
um, and <laughs> and all of the different functions they can serve. Yeah. All right. So I think the Very answer, nice. what role should they play? All of them. <laughs> all of them. All right. All right. Yeah. One last question before the very last poem. Does knowing okay. that your poems are published and out there in the world validate your being a poet, or are you content knowing they're out of your system? Or Sorry, what's the last part? Am I content knowing? Are you content knowing that they're out of your system, that they're out of you, that they've emerged from okay. you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I really want to say that um, I am not validated as a poet by having a book because I, I, I know that having poems published doesn't make you a poet. Like writing poems is what makes you a poet. Um, wow. But, you know, that said, like, yeah, it feels great to, to have them collected into a single volume that somebody could pick up and, and, you know, read more than one or two of them at a time. Um, so, so I think that it, it certainly, it makes me feel good. Um, it makes me, it makes me feel like incredibly, uh, like it's a great privilege and honor that these pieces can make their way to readers. But I also, yeah, I, I want to make sure to, you know, emphasize the fact that, like, that's not what makes me a poet, and that's not what makes anybody a poet. What makes someone a poet is is writing poems. Um, well, and, yeah, I, I guess, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please, please. I, I'm, I'm just listening. I'm just, I'm just listening. Please continue. Okay. I was just going to add that I, I am also content that they are out of my system and that I can kind of put them to bed. <laughs> all right, all right. You know, I was wondering, it was going to be my next question, then your last poem. Do the internet and social media contribute to the well-being of poetry? What do you think about that? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, yes, I think so. Like, I think social media—it's definitely better for poetry than it is for poets. I think it's um, oh, it's a really great okay. resource for people. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm half joking, but um, you know, it mm-hmm. is, it is such a great resource for people looking to find poems. Um. To find themselves in poems, it can be it can be really useful in finding community that way through through you know people sharing poems that they've written or that they've read and like. Um, but you know, as somebody with kind of a lot of social anxiety, I find it a, a stress. I find social media a stressful place to spend time. Yes, um, it can be. It feels like yeah, it feels like it's like you're living in a neighborhood where nobody turns off their lights or shuts their blinds, and you're like am I also supposed to keep my lights on and my blinds up? Like, why is everybody so okay with being seen all the time like this? Like, I just Mm -hmm. feel very, Mm -hmm. um, it makes me feel a little bit, like, um, exposed, even though I don't even really, like, do much on there. But I think that feeling has a lot to do with it. Well, But, yeah, it's great for poetry. For this particular poet, I feel a little bit um, trepidatious about it sometimes. Well, I don't know why that particular question came to mind at that particular point. But I thought it was important <laughs> to ask because social media, as you just shared, and as we know, means different things to different people. And it can become yeah. intrusive on one's life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this we live in a really technological event. We know these things. So, Kaylin, one last poem mm-hmm. from you. <laughs> We could be here all night. Okay. I enjoy yeah. talking to you. One <laughs> I, last poem for you. I enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thank okay. you. 
So <laughs> this has been fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having yeah, me. So and, um, yes. I owe you my yeah. life. Thank you. <laughs> Probably not as much as that, but <laughs> um, okay. Oh, who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay, so this last poem is called Lightning Suspected in Death of Horses. I want to take you to the black mud spring pasture where six horses fell and did not get back up. I don't know if they were dark or dappled. I wasn't there. I read it in a newspaper in Vermont, sitting at the corner of a diner that no longer exists, lightning suspected in deaths of horses, small article in a bottom corner, not much more information than that. It struck me. I'm not trying to be funny. I carried that headline around until it became a slogan, although I'm not sure what I'd been sold. Maybe this. The sky opens, you kneel and beg its mercy, and it doesn't make one lick of difference. Or maybe light appears, and your life is transformed, finally getting exactly what you asked for all along. A shift in luck, sudden brilliance, your body lit, electric, your own enough to let it go. Thank you. Wow. What piece of advice would you give to your readers, if any advice? Oh, um, gee, I don't know if I have any advice that applies universally except, like, wear sunscreen. <laughs> Was that a song? Was that like a song in the 90s? Do you remember that graduation song? I think I might have just ripped off the graduation song. But uh, anyway, (laughs) I do believe in that piece of advice. So um, everyone should wear sunscreen and and read poetry. Wear sunscreen and read poetry. poetry. (laughs) Yes. And um, talk about your feelings. All right. I like that. I like that. Where can (laughs) listeners find your work? Where can they find Iguana Iguana? Great. Yeah. So they can find Iguana Iguana um, online through DeFellum's website. They can find it. um, Hopefully they'll be able to find it at some of their bookstores. But, you know, basically where if you order books online, wherever you order books online, you'll be able to find it there. Like, um, from the from the press itself, but also on like Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, um, and then maybe maybe it'll make a little appearance in your local independent bookstore. That would be cool, but I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Definitely online. Maybe it's in your local independent bookstore. <laughs> All right. How can listeners stay in touch? Um, I am on Twitter uh, at KalenCT. And um, I also have a website that I update quasi-regularly and will be updating more (laughs) soon. Um, And, yeah, also just – and there's, like, a contact form there, too, if anyone ever wants to drop me a line and say hello or talk about poems. All right. Or sunscreen. Or sunscreen. What's next for you, Caitlin? Where do you go from here? What's next? Um, Like tonight or – no, like no. In terms of your writing, <laughs> your next project. What are you working on now? <laughs> like I'm, I'm getting ready for dinner. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've got a few other projects in the works. Um, so you know, I've kind of always got like 
12 Irons in the Fire. It's been working on and off for a while on a manuscript of poems and the voices of different creatures and features of like myths and lore and legends, like cryptids and fun stuff like that. Um, I'm also working on some prose poems right now, which is not my usual mode, but it's been really generative. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this PhD program at the University of Missouri, and um, I'm actually going to write a nonfiction dissertation. So I've been oh, wow. um, kind of, yeah, working on some stuff about, I, I could say what it's, I could say what I think it's about right now, but I know for sure that it'll like change forms five, three years from mm-hmm. now. So I'm not even going to mm-hmm. like, all right, all right. But it's probably about like unusual environments. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me. And as I said earlier, I want you to return maybe in the fall, early fall, because okay. I truly yeah, want a, a, I'm serious. I'm serious. I want a part two, <laughs> less questions from me, and more of an opportunity for you to share your work, because your work needs to be heard, okay. and the book needs to be read. So I'll, I'll email you so we can set this thing up. Uh, I really okay, want you to come back, great. because I have thoroughly enjoyed this hour. I really have. I think I you've got really an amazing this hour future. As well. Well, I'm glad. Well, we so were way for, back. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. And also for, like, hosting this podcast where poets can come and talk about poems and, and read their work. I think that's, you know, really great work that you're doing. And, and um, thank you for putting this out into the world. Well, thank you. That, that touched my heart. Thank you. Well, everybody, we did it again. Kaylin Capward Thomas's book, Iguana Iguana, is out there somewhere in the world. Go get it and start reading it and join us when she returns for more poetry. But to all of you, as I share every, every week, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Take care. All right, Kaylin. Be good. Good night. All right. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.